Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. And I'm Rick Karneski. We do have an interview today with Kishore Hari, the director of the Bay Area Science Festival that will be happening October 29th through November 6th. This is a big, big festival, and Kishore will cover some of the individual events as well as the philosophy behind the festival. This interview is pre-recorded and edited. So I'm Kishore Hari. I'm the director of the first annual Bay Area Science Festival, which is a 10-day celebration of science throughout the Bay Area. There's 100 events from Santa Rosa to San Jose, all to get people excited about all things science, technology, engineering, and math. 95% of our events are free, and I'm really here to just evangelize science. I love using that term, evangelize science, because most scientists hate using the word evangelize. Great. Can you describe some of the events that are taking place there? Some of our major events are big, free, public, outdoor, almost museum-like exhibitions. So we have three of them across the Bay Area, one at Cal State East Bay featuring 40 to 50 different local organizations doing hands-on activities, one on Saturday, November 5th at Infineon Raceway, again, 40 to 50 exhibitions, this time featuring a lot of organizations from the North Bay, and then concluding on Sunday the 6th with a free day at AT AT&T Park, 170 different exhibits on display. We're essentially turning AT&T Park into a free outdoor science museum for the day. It's going to be incredible. There's everything from marine science to the latest in medical technology to you can climb aboard an 80-foot trailer that's full of medical diagnostic equipment that can analyze everything from microbes in your bloodstream to doing a scan of your brain. It's in, it'll be incredible. Those, I think, are the highlight events, the ones that we're trying to emphasize, the come one, come all, enjoy science just like you enjoy arts or music or food festivals. But in addition to that, we have a whole series of talks and conversations and hikes and explorations throughout the Bay Area to really connect people with just the resources that exist here. The Bay Area is pretty much the leader of science and technology in the in the country. And we could walk 10 minutes outside the studio and we could go stand where plutonium was discovered. How cool is that? 10 minutes up the hill is where Sal Perlmutter works, who just won the Nobel Prize in physics. We can go to any spot in the Bay Area. There's resources like that. And so we have a series of science hikes. We have a series of science conversations that we call the Wonder Dialogues that are all about meeting the, the greatest scientific minds here locally. We, have, we even have a science pub crawl for adults so they can enjoy the fun and see just the inherent science that goes on behind everyday things from beer to music to art galleries, etc. It's too much science for 10 days. 
So do you have any other work at UCSF in addition to sort of organizing this festival? So I'll tell you the premise of the festival is it, it was actually funded by the National Science Foundation. They funded four particular sites as a sponsor to see – to really understand what do science festivals do. In great sort of scientific thinking, we're going to measure what they do. We're going to measure the immeasurable. So that's actually the number one task of this festival is not just to set forth – this great festival in the Bay Area, but actually understand how it impacts communities and then take it to the next level, which is help spread that to communities across the country and particularly seed festivals in new communities that may not have them or have a dearth of resources. And the way that sort of has come forth is that we need to lead from the front. So the Bostons, the DCs, the Chicago's, the San Francisco's of the world need to sort of start the science festivals in those science-rich communities that have the museums, that have the universities, and then really uh, coalesce all of that knowledge generated by that and take that to communities that aren't having it. So initially, that's the vision of the project. So I spent a good percentage of my time evangelizing about science festivals to other communities across the nation and spending a lot of time bringing in a lot of knowledge that exists internationally about how science festivals run. And that has been to great effect because when when we started this project, there's maybe like five to seven large-scale science festivals in the country in, in sort of the places you expect. Boston, there's the Maker Fair here. There's There was a big event in Chicago. There was one in D.C., et cetera. Now we're expecting in, uh, in 2012 almost 40 in a short period of time. And they're in unusual locations. Like there's one in, in uh, southeast Missouri. Uh, there's uh, Arkansas is, is launching a statewide festival. North Carolina has a statewide festival. Las Vegas had a science festival. Their actual tagline was Las Vegas Science Festival, What Are the Odds? So what I thoroughly enjoy about the project more than anything else is we get to help communities that you normally wouldn't identify with this kind of celebration into having it. And then more importantly, on another level, we we work off of a supplemental grant from the NSF to help seed these or link these festivals to science festivals developing in key Middle East nations. So we um, the Cambridge Science Festival that's based out of the MIT Museum has long had a relationship with um, uh, the American University of Cairo, and they've actually helped launch a Cairo Science Festival. And if you permit me a, a quick story on this, I, I still can't get over this email I got one day. So one of our partners from San Diego went to Cairo to sort of help get it off the ground. I think it was about two and a half months after the Arab Spring really took hold. And they're having, you know, a two-day festival in in the middle of Egypt, and they had all these students come. And at the end of this big, long day, they went up on the roof and set up some telescopes. So all of these um, Egyptian students who never looked through a telescope before in their life could look at the night sky. Uh, and, like, what's more elemental than that than just looking up and enjoying the universe that surrounds us? And they did that for a couple hours. There was an astronomer there. And they looked down, and from American University of Cairo, you can see Tahrir Square. And all of the people up on the roof then joined the protest that was happening in Tahrir Square right after the astronomy viewing. We had one American colleague there, and he sort of got swept up in the mob. He He's fine, but I still find that amazing how education – 
uh, cultural events can really mix to become part of like a, a greater movement. I, I thoroughly enjoy that. And if science can be an agent of just empowering people, especially in these nations where it's not celebrated or welcome to have these kinds of ex- exploits, that's the kind of thing that I want to be part of. And, and we should support in terms of exporting our, our, our talent and resources to those nations. You're listening to Spectrum on Calix Berkeley. We are talking today with Kishore Hari, the director of the Bay Area Science Festival. The talks. I I have to stop and say that I'm a nerd. I am like 110% nerd. And I love these rich conversations between intellectuals just really going at it about how X, Y, or Z was discovered. There's a conversation on November 2nd at the Cal Academy featuring two different neuroscientists talking about what will we ever understand the brain. And one of the neuroscientists, Henry Markram, has developed something called the Blue Brain Project, which maps all of the processes that 10,000 neurons will do. That's only a small segment of the neurons in our brain. But how amazing is that just to understand fundamentally what's happening in your brain in that moment? And he's being joined by David Eagleman, who's a neuroscientist at Baylor, who's most famous for studying synesthesia and our perception of time and memory. I think his most famous experiment is where he dropped some of his grad students 200 feet in free fall to see if they perceive time to go slower in those moments of of heightened fright. And they're going to discuss sort of the, with all the advances in neuroscience, all the advances in our understanding of how the brain operates, is it something that we can ever really touch upon and say, we know how the brain works? We can construct an artificial brain that can operate on human, or is there something just beyond that that is innately human, that is innately just us, or innately me, or or any of you, that can never be replicated. That one is exciting to me because it's one of those, it's, to me, the brain is the is the scientific frontier. That, and then on the other side of the spectrum, is um, Peter Norvig from Google and Eric Horvitz from Microsoft are talking about artificial intelligence and where that's going. And Peter Norvig's um, sort of famous as he's the one that is running the Stanford Free AI course, is pioneering some of the work with uh, the driverless cars that you may have heard about. Eric Horvitz is is no slouch in his own right. Leader in the field talking about where this is going with everything from Watson, you know, beating the contestants on Jeopardy to driverless cars to all of those IBM ads that won't stop interrupting my football watching about how to build a smarter planet. Where is this actually going? Can we actually build computer systems that can solve some of our greatest challenges, whether that is curing disease to you know, understanding uh, redistributing traffic. I think these are fundamental questions. And I think they're, again, poking at this big topic of the intersection of humanity and technology that I personally find fascinating. So those are the two that I would, that jump off the page to me, just from a, a straight, I'm a nerd perspective. And have you drawn on other science festivals for inspiration? Drawn upon is a polite way to say that I have blatantly stolen ideas from other science festivals. And I think that's actually probably 
the the reason that festivals are emerging so much more is that we have a little community. It, we call it the Science Festival Alliance. It's a member community of all these science festivals, and we talk to each other regularly, and we give each other ideas, and we steal them, we approve upon them. Sometimes I steal ideas and I make them worse, but in any case, it's that basic ideas. Absolutely, we talk to each other all the time about um, everything from event structure to how we work with our partners to to just basically venting to each other when we're up at three in the morning, still working on like production timelines and all sorts of fun stuff like that. But that's absolutely how we're innovating. Every community has its own personality and its own assets. So they all take on a different flavor. But uh, what's exciting to me is that doing this community to community, you really see some different things emerge. I have a close collaborator at the Philadelphia Science Festival, and we have a little bit of a rivalry going, a friendly rivalry. And so this year, I think she did two things that just blew blew it out of the water that were just amazing. One is she partnered with the Phillies, and UPenn Engineering constructed a robot to throw out a first pitch. So there are all these like 40,000 Philly fans that are just like, oh, I'm going to a 130 game. And they all of a sudden, this robot gets wheeled out onto the field and like pitches something. And uh, what was amazing, mind-blowing about that, I was at that game with a colleague from um, Cambridge, and we're sitting in the in the upper deck, and there's this down-home Philly guy, born and raised. He turned around, and he's like, you know, I had a question about that robot. I turned around, and I was like, are there any roboticists here? And there's this army of pen engineers sitting like three rows back, and they all stood up, and we're like, yeah, we're roboticists. And so like some guy that came to a Philly's uh, baseball game was talking to a roboticist about something. And, and the best question he had, he's like, that little bulb on the front of the robot that looked like it had a camera, did that actually do anything? And they're like, no, that was decorative. And I thought that was great. That They fully admitted they just put something on there to make it look cooler. That I thought was incredible. Philadelphia Science Festival had so many amazing things, but I was lucky to be part of their astronomy night. And we're doing that here in the Bay Area as well. We have an astronomy night with 20 different locations that are hosting lectures and telescope viewings and planetarium shows. It, it'll be amazing. But when I was at the Philadelphia night, I went to this lecture by Guy Bluford, first African-American in space. Grew up in West Philly. So he went back to his West Philly neighborhood and gave a talk about but how he got to be an astronaut and about the International Space Station. And this is one of those like perfect moments because so he's giving this talk and he was talking to basically an audience of about 150 African-American kids and, and their parents. And there was a woman that basically was just in the front row at the end was just almost in tears because she's like, I've lived in this neighborhood my whole life. And sometimes we just need a hero. And it, that's what it was. It And it wasn't a sports player. It wasn't a politician. It wasn't, you know, just somebody. It was somebody that worked hard, that had a lot of pride in that neighborhood that came back. And so that went beyond science to me. That was the community taking pride in one of their own, which we all should be able to do. And then the sort of beautiful end of that night is he talked about the ISS and all of the kind of secret life of living on a space station. And we walked outside and there's some telescopes set up in the in the lot and the ISS actually passed overhead, and so everyone that got to hear him talk about it got to see the space station for the first time. And I don't know, but that was the first time I'd ever really looked at the space station. And it's like, you know, I hear about it on the news all the time, but there is a space station orbiting the Earth. 
it's and there's like people in there. That's just remarkable. And this guy had been on there, and he was standing two feet from me, and he he was uh, as humble as as any one person could ever be, and just so excited to tell people about that discovery. And then lastly, I'm just a Simpsons nerd, and so there was a guy that gave a talk on science and the Simpsons during the festival. He wrote a book on it. His name's uh, Paul Halpern. He's a professor at the University of Sciences in Philadelphia. And it was in the basement of a library. So it was the most sort of surprising location for a Simpsons talk. And it was full, like on 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. And all of these people asking all of these inane questions, those are ideas I've blatantly stolen. The reason I've stolen them is they're just incredibly brilliant. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We are talking with Kishore Hari, director of the Bay Area Science Festival. You're really poking at those innovative events that do something a little different. And the ones that strike to me around that is the fact that most of these events a wide majority, I would say over 75%, aren't happening on college campuses. They're not happening in places where science is traditionally housed. So I think about this science pub crawl that's going to be on Friday the 4th, which is a takeover of the Mission District in San Francisco. So we have a, a science author. His name's Carl Zimmer. He's famous for studying E. coli and microbes in your gut. And he wrote this kind of comical book called Science, Inc. That's a compendium of all of the great science tattoos people have sent pictures um, for. And he's giving a talk at, at a tattoo parlor. I don't think it's very often that you get much science at tattoo parlors. You start to see, like, how the community at large, every place you go, when you get your coffee in the morning, when you go into that tchotchke store, when you go just walking down the block, it's just surrounding you at all times. And that, I think, is freaking awesome. I'm also excited because there's uh, there's trainings that take real science experiments into the classroom. We've partnered with a teacher. He teaches a class on biology, and within the class, they're going to do a, a specific experiment where they trap bees within the community garden at the school. And it's part of a larger experiment to understand how climate change and just you know micro conditions within your environment are affecting the spread of pollinators. It's amazing that this is typically taught by just a lecture in the classroom. I don't know about you, but at 16, I certainly had no part in any published scientific study. And the last one I'll bring up about this is a friend of mine last year piloted this project here in the Bay Area called Science Hack Day. She formed a little committee of, of interested folks that basically brings together designers, developers, and scientists to really hammer on big scientific data sets. It's November 12th and 13th, the weekend after the festival, so it's a post-festival event. But the reason I'm so excited about it is 200 people, most of them never met before, being basically locked into a room and working together just out of nothing and working on big scientific issues. How did you first get into science and then science advocacy? So the science education route for me, I, I just call it science education. I have no other way to describe it. I 
owned a company for a while. I was uh, sort of a, a successful chemist, I guess. And it was fascinating and exciting because I was in sales and business and product development, all of these things. And I realized after years of doing it, I just had no real passion for it. Like it was never the thing that, that got me up in the morning that drove me to ju- to do. And when I thought back on all of the things that sort of make me happy in, in life, one of the memories that always came up is just BSing about science with my friends over beers and how that was just an agent of conversation. Is, is science just like brought out the best in us? We have these kind of great conversations about where stuff was going. And I realized I'm, I was like, well, if that's what I really love to do, why not become an agent of that instead of sort of saying I enjoy it? And I was at a conference. It's the AAAS conference. It was uh, the largest scientific society at a conference here. And I decided once I was just going to go. I was just going to go, go to sessions, enjoy myself. I know that's probably a little atypical for most people. Let's go to a big science conference and just drop into sessions. But I saw a flyer up about a science cafe. I was like, somebody is making a entire science-themed cafe? That sounds great. I would go there all the time. That's not what it was at all. But I, I went to this mixer. I met this this gentleman, Ben, who was like, who we basically sat around for a couple hours talking about science over beers. And I was like, so what's a science cafe? And he's like, that's it, except with a few more people. It's just people talking about science. There's scientists there. That sort of ignites the conversation, but it's a sort of democracy thing. Like within a month, I had started my own in the city. And it just became the best part of my day was working on that project, is getting all these people together, getting them to talk about different issues and how much learning can happen in those situations and how hungry people were to learn about all all of the, the great advancements. And I kept following that path, and that led me to greater and greater involvement in sort of the marketplace, which is, one, creating a website, bayareascience.org, that just listed out all of the incredible science events that are happening. And there's literally almost 100 a week public science events that are just happening around the Bay Area. I was like, what, what an incredible resource. I just sort of fell into this position leading a festival. And it was just an amazing opportunity where the, the whole premise was well, in, in Europe and in Asia, they have these big celebrations of science akin to arts and music festivals. And they they celebrate it like they do anything else as just an important part of culture. And that couldn't have resonated more with me personally. So I went after that position. I luckily landed into it. And here I am a year and a half later. I wanted to know how you got interested in science personally in the first place. Uh, So all credit to the greatest scientist I have ever known in my life, my dad. Every morning, like clockwork, the guy was, was so disciplined. At six in the morning, he'd be at his desk and he'd be just reading, not working, reading. He was always very disciplined, but more importantly, within that discipline, like there was just innate curiosity on how things work. All credit to him for igniting that sense of just wonder within me. And then just being spirited along by friends and teachers along the way. I think we've all had a great, the memory of that continues to inspire us. I have to say, like, it, it all goes back to my dad. I can't thank him enough because it's opened so many like doors in my life. Just wondering about stuff and and tinkering 
is probably some of the most enjoyment I have. And now that I have a new son, I just hope I can impart that same same interest to him um, with the caveat that I hope he doesn't destroy my TV or alarm clock or any of those other things that I, I did back when I was a kid. What can other people who are interested in helping out with the festival do? There are volunteer opportunities up on our website at bayareascience.org. There's a ton of volunteer opportunities. I need help endlessly, whether it be promoting the festival or being on site and helping out the day of. Most importantly, I want people to come and enjoy. And after they enjoy being part of the festival, I want them to go home and continue that conversation with their loved ones, with their friends and family. That actually is probably the most important component here. I need help. So if you have time and energy and are excited about the Science Festival, please go sign up on the page. There are different opportunities available. But at the end of the day, I want people to enjoy it. I want people to experience something they've never seen before. I want people to take risks, go places that they normally wouldn't go. If you don't normally talk to a scientist, this is your week to finally meet and shake hands and talk with one. I always say the tagline for the festival is unleash your inner scientist. I think that's what I want to see uh, most from the community is just to get in touch with that that spot of curiosity and wonder that's in, innate in every human being and just go out and enjoy. Well, Kishore, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The music played during the show is written and performed by David Lostana from his album titled Folk and acoustic. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. Thank you.